Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I hope I am not of subnormal intelligence, but the fact is that your vague lecture isn't very illuminating, Dan. (laughs) 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 And it begins. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and it's out of fashion in these decaying times to be a scholar. It is. It is. These decaying times. My next podcast is going to be called These Decaying Times. Decaying Times. Oh, that would be good. That's actually a good podcast title. Welcome to Space the Nation, folks, where we look at science fiction through the lens of... Complex interdependence. And toxic masculinity. For some reason, (laughs) that's the theoretical framework (laughs) that came to me for discussing this book, which is... (laughs) Isaac Asimov's Foundation. We should just underline right off the bat, mm-hmm. this was my idea. <laughs> yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that at multiple times throughout this podcast, listeners, because it is safe to say that Anna did not entirely enjoy reading this book. And it was um, my second time. <laughs> I think I read this twice. I can see why you'd be angry about having to read this a second time. But this is part of our Canon Fodder episode, you know, series, which we have we have not done a Canon Fodder episode in quite some time. But the idea here is that we look at a canonical piece of science fiction, whether it's film or book or what have you, and basically consider does it really belong in the canon? Is it does canon it really? or is it fodder? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We are again Space the Nation and we have a Patreon if you want to support us. The mm-hmm. Patreon is patreon.com slash space the nation. If you want to throw us a few bucks, that really helps. It keeps Alwyn in kibble. Alan mm-hmm. being the executive producer of the show, also a corgi. But, you know, <laughs> corgis can do anything they put their mind to. They were actually you know, the secret I, rulers of England, from what I will I add, thanks to those generous donations, Alan got to go on vacation recently, and, you know, that was lovely. I mean, you, you, there was a lovely shot that I believe you tweeted out, yes. Anna, of, of Alan looking contemplative. Well, he was, he was considering the death of the queen. There we go. You that know, makes sense. Yes. His, his distant cousins now officially the rulers of England. <laughs> there are other really good reasons to support us on Patreon, which, by the way, is patreon.com slash space the nation. Besides keeping Alwyn in kibble, those uh, benefits include getting episodes early on a Friday afternoon so you can enjoy us at your leisure over the weekend. You also get access to our Discord, which is just a great space. I feel like I, I believe I don't we think a, I overhype it. I do not. No, think no. I, I mean, did, did, correct me if I'm wrong. Was a sports channel just just? Yes, added? a sports ball channel was. Sports opened. ball channel was just that. Although good. we do have hockey fans who made their <laughs> made their presence known. But that's fine. Hockey fans are welcome. Fans right, of all but forms it's not of sports ball. ball. But it's not a sports ball. It's that's ball. Fair. It's yes. a ball. But someone did okay. point out if you put it on its side, it looks it's kind round. of like a ball. It's round. Yeah. yeah. So it to fits. the two dimensional beings, it's it's sports ball. That's right. So we have a wonderful Discord with lots of different subject areas where you can just talk amongst yourselves about anything you want among like-minded folk. They're really smart, fun people. I pop in occasionally. Dan sometimes stops I popped in recently. I will pop in some more. We call him Dad. (laughs) (laughs) He's an Emmerich-style dad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to going to a court to bailing out one of our Discord members from... (laughs) From a bail hearing, yes. If you're already a supporter, you can rate and review us, perhaps, or tell your friends and neighbors. You can also tweet about us, Mm -hmm. or you can tweet at us. I am at Dan Dresner, and she is at Anna Marie Cox. That is correct. All right, Dan, Mm -hmm. we're going to have to talk about this book, but first, Mm -hmm. how are you? I'm glad you asked, Anna. I'm actually doing quite well. First of all, it's it's a lovely fall day here, so like we're now in full blown fall mode in New England, and the leaves are changing color. Also, I did something rare for me, which is home repair, and it actually seemed to work. I know, I know, I know. We're preparing my, to host my expression Thanksgiving. was one of shock and surprise. Yes, listeners. yes. We're preparing to host Thanksgiving, which meant I had to fix some dining room chairs that have been bulky. I was able to fix them with minimal effort, which means I will not have to pay through the nose for more expensive dining room chairs. And I am really, really pleased with that. (laughs) How are you, Anna? I'm all right. Yeah, it's still, well, I guess it's sort of fall here in that it's been under 90. (laughs) That counts as being, yeah, in Central Texas. I'm still very much enjoying um, the antics of Molly the murder kitten and my (laughs) beloved horned frogs, Dan, 
are yes. five and zero. Oh. That is amazing. And I actually, I did not check the ranking state, but they're now ranked. And they are. I saw not... that yesterday when I was watching uh, baseball. I noticed like there was a score. I was like, oh my god, the Horn Frogs are like in the top twenty. I think they're like nineteenth or something. They were around there. They might have jumped up. Right, because of, of, of winning. This recording, yes. yeah, yes. because. Yes. Kansas was like a, they beat Kansas yesterday, oh, and Kansas okay. was kind of a sentimental favorite for a lot of people because they've sucked so hard for so long. Yeah. And so we're kind of the bad guys, <laughs> but <laughs> TCU sucked for the past few years too. So it was really fun to see them win. And, you know, TCU football is the thing that my dad and I really bond over. So oh, it's not just sweet. that they won, it's that we, yeah. you know, dad and I get to celebrate together. Speaking of jointly rooting for teams. One of the sports teams that we jointly root for, the New York Giants, won this past weekend. And it was actually amusing to listen to the broadcast because clearly the NFL announcing team was surprised that they won. (laughs) Did you notice that? I mean, they beat the Packers who are, right, they're a good team. Yes. Like they're a good team. And like what Aaron Rodgers does is do last minute down the field comebacks. And that did not happen in this case. Did not happen. You know what? It was a surprising plot twist. Contrary to what we are reading for this Do you like how I brought that around? Yes. Do you like how I brought that back? Yes and no. Because okay. now we have to talk about the book, <laughs> right? Which is Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Uh, Dan, why the fuck are we talking about this book? We are doing this because of you, Anna. <laughs> I learned this from you. Okay, <laughs> that's 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 the reason we're doing this. I just want to be very clear at the outset because there's going to be a lot of ranting in this episode to blame Anna for it. She wanted me to read this because I had not ever read the book before. After we reviewed last year Apple Plus's show, somewhat less than favorably, I think. I mean, we like some things about the show, and actually, let me put it this way: it's diverting. Every- I found it yeah. diverting. I agree, and let me put it this way: I actually, after having read the book have a higher, I now give the show more credit. It is infinitely more interesting than this book. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, to repeat, this Cannon Fodder episode is entirely Anna's fault. I regret nothing. <laughs> and that's sort of true. I regret having to read this a second time. But yeah. as you said before we started recording, one's eyes glaze over. So yeah. I did have to read it a second time because I didn't remember a lot except that mm. I hated it. <laughs> And yeah, I remembered, there's a, I remembered it, that there's basically no female characters. I mean, like, it, it's... We'll, we'll talk a little we'll more about that. We'll talk more about that, that but there's yes, basically yes. no female characters, and that it's... What if we did science fiction that was just exposition? What if yes. we did nothing but explain things? <laughs> I think part of the problem for me... Let me put it this way. Part of the problem for me is that, like, I've, I've gotten to read more canonical science fiction yeah. because of this podcast on it. And it's a type. I mean, you know, like... I mean, it felt very similar to The Moon is a Harsh Mistress in some ways. And well, we'll, we'll talk about yeah, the theme. that's you know, a type yeah. of, yes. I mean, yeah. for sure, that yeah. is a certain but it's not, genre. It's, but, but it's a genre hashtag, that has yeah. fallen out of favor right. <laughs> for yes. reasons. Yes. But we need to talk about it because it is definitely, of all the things we've done, this might be the most canonical. Right. right. And I, like, you can see the DNA of this show in some ways in other things that we are going to be talking about. It the DNA times. of this book. Yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. And and it's true. Like the DNA of this book in some ways informs I think a lot of of six later science fiction. There's no denying. Yeah. yeah, and he you know, Asimov's laws of robotics, like right. his influence for better or worse and mm-hmm. in many ways worse <laughs> is, you know, incalculable. Yeah. So, yes. I don't regret suggesting that we do it because i think people need to know just how horrible and toxic this book is (laughs) (laughs) i regret having to read it twice that's what i regret fair enough fair enough but is there a chekhov's what's it in this book like it's all exposition so it's kind of hard (laughs) to have a chekhov's what's it do you know what i mean like because there's no descriptions of anything did you notice that dan there's There's no descriptions of anything (laughs) yeah yeah so the way i would put it is Yes, there is a Chekhov's What's It. It is literally Chekhov's protagonist, I guess. And, it, and the book starts with Harry Seldon. And, you know, he keeps popping up at various times as a deus ed machina. And the scary thing is that's not the worst part of Asimov's plotting. I mean, you know, he shows up every once in a while to fix things that are, like, happening. And yet... It's not it's even actually, fixing. He shows yeah. up to do more exposition. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. <laughs> 
Yes. And and we don't know what any of these characters look like. That's actually what I mean by description. There's no there's yeah. no description of the background. There's no description right. of like how things work. There's like there's not a even little a bit of description of, of some of the nuclear stuff, but yeah, like there's not there's not even any description of personality. Like I you know, like there's barely any characterizations in this. There's book. very little physical description except yeah. actually when it's negative. Did you notice right. that? Yes, the I did notice that. Only time someone gets described is if they have unattractive features. I did notice that. That was not a, a charming part of the book. I'm yes. going to go with Chekhov's stupid reveal. Because <laughs> he keeps doing it. Or you could yeah. say Chekhov's plot summary. Because the <laughs> plot keeps getting summarized. There is one section of the book. I think it might be the last section where the plot uh -huh. is summarized twice in a row. Like yes. the events Well, because there's like the trial. Up... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the yeah. trial. Yeah. The events yeah. coming up to that section are summarized twice. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's. You know, now there's a reason uh, for that, Dan. If you want to ask me, what is traditionally our next section? Right. So let's get to the story behind the story. And so, again, in some ways, I am curious, Anna, because <laughs> I, is the Foundation series like Dune or Game of Thrones, where Asimov just kept writing stuff to make money and/or procrastinate rather than actually end the series? Whew. Well, <laughs> so Isaac Asimov is an interesting character well i mean hmm i almost don't want to call him interesting like he was basically a, a lecherous old man but even before he was an old man and he was a greedy son of a bitch he seems just like a terrible person like everything oh. i've read about him screams unpleasant yeah. There are probably some people that liked him. I mean, he had friends. Uh, he was very influential, you know, started a lot of the fan conventions and whatnot. Hmm. And that's actually his most toxic legacy, I think, is hmm. that fandom in America looks like it does a little bit because of the types of people that started those conventions and went to those conventions. Hmm. And he was well known for, like, grabbing women's asses and tits. Like just literally, just yeah, just did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he he had a quote about it that I don't think I put this in in my notes, but the quote something like, "Yeah, you get slapped a lot, but you also get laid." Oh, uh, so yeah, but you wanted to the books. So the books, yeah, the books. He had he's written over five hundred books. He's kind of recognized as one of the most prolific authors of all time. Mm -hmm. Counting some things as books is generous. There's some stuff that made, made me not really a book, more like a novel or novelette or something. Novella, yeah. Novella. Although, <laughs> novelette, I like, actually. <laughs> In this case, yes. That In this case, I like novelette. Up. I like that okay. for him. Okay, yeah. It was partially, I guess, to make money, because also he comes out of the pulp era where you did get paid just like for, you know, however for much word. a word, and that's yeah. how you just you wrote on that kind of roll through paper and ripped it off and then gave it to the editor. But also this, this book originally appeared as like short stories. In, yeah. That's in, one of the reasons why yeah. there's all the plot summary, but yeah, there is such a thing as an editor. Right. <laughs> also, if you're going to turn this into a novel, I don't know, maybe like edit or rewrite. Like yeah, that's allowed. Is what fill I it out a little. Yeah. You know? Add some sinew, you know? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes that seems right. But I did find a quote to sort of address this, which is, we all want to be known for something. And I was beginning to see there would be a good chance that if nothing else, I would be known for the vast number of books I would publish. Oh, God, that's a whole. <laughs> so in other words, this is like, so in other words, Asimov is like the Russian army. He wants to be known for quantity as a form of quality. I, yeah. Yeah, okay. and um, he okay. has. A, I have so much I could say about him. I mean, again, you know, listeners, if you're curious, he is very well documented as a person. I do want to read something he said about his writing style. <laughs> oh no! I have an informal style, which means I tend to use short words <laughs> and simple sentence structure to say nothing of occasional colloquialisms. This grates on people who like things that are poetic, weighty, or complex, and above all, obscure. On the other hand, the informal style pleases people who enjoy the sensation of reading an essay without being aware that they are reading, question mark, my insertion there, and a feeling that ideas are flowing from the writer's brain into their own without mental friction. Oh, my God, he was trying to write like television. Like, 
I, I mean, that's a description. Like Robert, I think Robert Thompson, who was like the biggest quote whore in in the business, once described that the important thing to realize about television is that people are watching it as they're doing other things, like folding laundry and so on and so forth. That's clearly what he wanted his books to be. It was like you're like he he clearly and anticipated he, well, and he clearly anticipated like he he We're, wants a passive reader. Like that's actually what's what's stunning yeah. to me about that yes. reveal is that yeah. he doesn't yeah. want his readers thinking. <laughs> like he just right. he just Can't wants them to happen. like he no. wants to impart his thoughts onto them, which is something that is clear in the writing of this. Oh yes. Another thing he said about his writing I made up my mind long ago to follow one cardinal rule in all my writing to be quote unquote clear. I've given up all thought of writing poetically or symbolically <laughs> or experimentally or in any of the other modes that might, if I were good enough, get me a Pulitzer Prize. I would write merely clearly and in this way establish a warm relationship between myself and my readers. Okay, I, I'm going to intercede here just to point out that there are writers who write with simple prose but nonetheless do so with style. I mean, Raymond Carver, very simple prose stylist. Also, one could argue that like symbols and analogies and metaphors can be simple. And also (laughs) even can can actually like inform the reader. Can inform the reader and help them imagine what you're talking about. Yes. Again, I could go on. I really could. (laughs) I I won't. There's so much to say about him. Yeah. Here's something. Mm Mm-hmm. Quote, he considered himself a feminist. Oh. Is a line someone wrote in his Wikipedia entry. I, I want you to check that pass. I want you to check the Wikipedia I, I again. Because like I'm sure that has to have been deleted. There's no way that could have stood. Maybe like, there, by the time that this is airing, yes. someone will have corrected that. I think someone needs to. I'm just, you know, any Wikipedia, you know, editors there any who Wikipedia listen to this podcast, listening, based on what I've heard about Asimov, might want to Although he could have considered himself a feminist, sure, because there are people who, like, are toxic or, brutes who yeah, consider sure. themselves feminists. I think he may have been an, basically an incel. Like, I, I think in some ways, like, he would have, he would have really enjoyed Don't Worry Darling, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, he would have thought of it as clever sci-fi. Yes. And in fact, in the Discord, mm-hmm. someone mentioned the Black Mirror episode USS Callister. Right. In Which conjunction with this. Yes. And I uh, think, I, I see the point. I right? see the point. I actually think we should do the Callister episode. Some we point. should. Really and but, and, and yeah. I, I think that's a great, it's a criticism yeah. of this kind of science fiction. Yes, that's fair. Yes. Like, that's what it is. It's a parody slash criticism of this kind of, like, Mary Sue on steroids, mm-hmm. yeah. imagining a universe where you're the god. Where you're the hero. Yeah, Yeah, where you're yeah. the hero and you're the god and everyone has to do what you say. Yes. So having summarized the plot, thusly, as <sighs> <laughs> the writer, the author is the hero, right? Like, yes. that's sort of the weird thing about this, is that, like, he envisions himself as so fucking smart. That's one of the reasons I hated this. And we'll talk about it more. But the reason why I got so angry reading this is I started to hate the writer. Yeah. More than the characters. The characters are pretty hateful in and of themselves. Yeah. But... I started to, to really hate Isaac Asimov. Yes. Yeah, to the extent they're characters. Yes. But we should talk about what there is of a plot. Okay. Please. Let's get to act one. Everything is proceeding as I have foreseen. <laughs> so it's year 12,000 of the Quintilian Person Galactic Empire and all is well. Secure in that knowledge, Gail Dornick uh, heads to the central planet of Trantor. So he, and I'm going to be saying he a lot in this recap on him. <laughs> Uh, can work with famed scholar Harry Selden. Except, whoa, turns out the Imperial authorities have their eye on Selden because he has used psychohistory to predict the collapse of the Galactic Empire within the next three centuries. Selden is arrested by the Commission of Public Safety and put on trial. There, Selden explains that the Empire is doomed no matter what, but a foundation creating an Encyclopedia Galactica that stores the accumulation of knowledge could reduce the period of anarchy from 30,000 years to just a millennium. He also warns that if he is killed, it will hasten the fall of Trantor. Commissioner Chen gives him a choice of death or exile of him and his 100,000 followers to Terminus at the very edge of the galaxy to prepare the encyclopedia. He takes the latter option because, and I'm going to be saying this a lot too, Anna, he predicted this would happen all along. So, Anna, one of the things I've enjoyed about this podcast is that I've had to read more classic science fiction than you have, but... You've read still far more than I have. So let me ask you a question. Is it 
a necessary condition of canonical sci-fi to have a character who is so smart he already knows how the plot will unfold? <sighs> no. Okay, good. No, it isn't. Because that's I, a boring it, it, fucking I, plot, Anna. It's it, really boring. I mean, and I'm going to ask, like, besides Moon is a Harsh Mistress, what are you thinking? Oh, God. A little bit Ender's Game, actually. Although Ender's Game is a much oh, better novel than this. a little bit. This. But see, the thing yeah. is, I think in one of the reasons why this book is boring yeah. <laughs> is because everyone keeps telling you they know what's going to happen. And that just, like, as a reader, wait, I mean, I don't care. Then I don't care, right? Like, yeah. Although, no I stakes. should point out, yeah. I've, I've been watching both the Lord of the Rings uh, series mm-hmm. and the uh, House of the Dragon, both right. of which are prequels to very well-known Shows. canonical yeah. sci-fi yeah. and both of those shows succeed despite the fact that we all know what's going to happen well sure I so mean, it's not just we, that we know yeah. what's going to happen or that we're being told we know what's going to happen like this book just fails like i don't think you can blame it on the omniscience of the character maybe not what i think you can blame it on is what this book has in common with moon is harsh mistress which is how much of an asshole the author is like <laughs> I mean, didn't you get that? Didn't you get the feeling of being lectured? Yes. I mean, let me put this way. The other actually, the other book is... Mistress definitely, like, it feels like a lecture. It feels like someone telling you, you've been trapped in your dorm room with a libertarian. Right. No. The, the other thing <laughs> this book reminded me of was Atlas Shrugged. Oh, um, I have that. It's Atlas Shrugged with spaceships. Yeah. Atlas Shrugged, except with no women. But, like, yes. Yeah. The, you know, that basically... The problem is, is that these are books where there are two kinds of characters. There are the characters who are all-knowing and really smart, and then there are the looters and moochers, or corrupt or what have you. And that's not a—it's just not terrifically interesting after a while. It starts to, you know—I mean, it's interesting maybe when you're 16, which also might explain in part why this canon sort of endures. I could imagine as a teenager reading this and thinking, this is deep, whoa. But, like, you know— it, It's deep, and it can be weirdly flattering, like— yeah. If because you, you can put yourself on the side of the author. Which is what everyone who reads it as a teenager does. Yeah. That is the reason why these books have, I think, some, are compelling in some way. When you, If you read Rand as a teenager, you think of yourself as the creator. If you read this as a teenager, you think of yourself as the Harry Seldon character. Right, right. Yeah. And, and But if you have any experience in the world at all, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think, yes. you know, you ha- if you have some humility, right? right which is what a lot of teenagers are lacking. True. You being yes. recent parent of recent teenagers. Oh, God, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like, it's really hard to care about a character that's in a, and that invisible character of the author mm-hmm. that's just so contemptuous of, of so much of the world. Right. You know, that right. everyone's no, an g- idiot except for me. Yes, a good, like, one of the things you want in any kind of fiction, is that even if there's a bad guy, the, the bad guy should be compelling or interesting. I mean, you know, every once in a while, like like in Highlander, when Clancy Brown goes, you know, just totally cartoonish, that's still entertaining. But most interesting, you know, literature should have a character, if it's a bad character, you want, or someone It's a character. Thing. It's a character, exactly. There's right. multiple sides. You can see there's perspective taking. And there's none of that in this book, which is incredibly annoying. Well, okay, let's move on. So more about Harry Seldon. Yes. Well, act yes. Okay, so let's go to act two, Salver the Savior Man. Flash forward 50 years. Harry Seldon is long dead. 1.5 million souls live on Terminus, and the Encyclopedia Foundation number one is up and running. Weirdly, the Foundation Board of Trustees seems super confident that the Empire will protect them from the likes of the Four Kingdoms, planets that have already seceded from the Empire in all but name. The mayor of Terminus, Salver Harden, is less certain. This becomes a problem when the king of Anacreon proposes treating Terminus like a vassal state with a military base and everything. Trustee in chief Louis Pyrene has faith in protection from the Empire, but a visit from Lord Dorwin of the Empire makes it clear that's pretty much a chimera. Hardin proposes appeasing Anacreon with Terminus's expertise in nuclear power. This works for a spell, but Anacreon is soon champing at the bit, and Hardin is still frustrated by the board. Hardin and his chief advisor, Johan Lee, plan a coup d'etat to remove the Board of Trustees on the same day that a holographic recording of Harry Seldon is programmed to play in the city's time vault. The holographic recording is a gift for Hardin, as Harry Seldon acknowledges that the encyclopedia was a fraud hiding the real purpose of the Foundation, to prepare for the Second Galactic Empire. 
The board, acknowledging its error, cedes power to Salvor. Anacreon's invasion goes south when the other three kingdoms, informed by Hardin that Anacreon might gain a monopoly over nuclear power, threatens a joint attack unless they leave Terminus alone. Anna, I'm going to confess some puzzlement over Selden's intentional decision not to train any more psychohistorians so as to predetermine Terminus' strategy. Now, when we talked about the Apple show, I ripped psychohistory a new one for a whole variety of reasons of why it's just bullshit social science, but I'm going to grant Asimov his premise that psychohistory would be a real thing. I get the desire to lock that strategy in, but maybe, just maybe... Having a future psychohistorian would be useful as things start to fall apart? I just don't know where to begin. <laughs> yes? It's all so stupid. <laughs> I should have titled that for the act. Because there is the problem, there's still the problem of psychohistory, which we can say we critiqued in the Apple show, but it's still... Just dumb. It's dumb, and it's basically magic, and the books yeah. would be better if it was actually wizards. Right. You know? Like, if they just said this is wizardry. Because the way that they treat it as a science, it isn't a science. It is magic, right? Like, they Which, have this whole thing where they train people, like, we're going to get to the religion yeah. part, but, like, yeah. there's this whole thing about how you can supposedly, like, kind of train people in the basics of something without ever revealing to them how it really works. Right. That you can almost treat it. In some ways, it's... It's like cargo cult signs in, in some ways. But like, and, and I will... And that's a, that, well, one of the things that happens here is that in whatever 100 years, no one's thought to try and figure it out for themselves. Yeah. Like... Labor <laughs> this way, and I'm no going to... No one's been like, you know what? We should probably figure out how this psychohistory thing works. <laughs> also, you're assuming I, there might have been some psychohistorians on Trantor still. Like, I, that was another issue. Let me put it this way. I am going to say something positive. About Asimov, so don't don't hate me. One, I know, I know. Oh God, you should see on his face right now, listeners. I, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but one of the legitimately interesting things about this is the idea of how science and religion can wind up being the same things. I want to talk yeah. about this, and it, yeah. we, we can do that in the next section because sure. quote unquote religion plays a bigger role there. Right. I think you know. Spoiler alert. I think that's stupid too. And okay, I agree. <laughs> I see what he's trying to do. Yeah. But I don't think it, it's successful. No, like psychohistory, it collapses like a house of cards. Yeah. Probably. But, but leave us wait. What it's I a legitimately this interesting section thing. is just how badly it's written. Oh, also, yeah. yeah. Which is like some of what you, you have described the plot in a way that's more interesting than it is described in the book. <laughs> oh, thank you. Because <laughs> half of what you described in the book is described in retrospect. Yes. They don't describe the coup. There's a coup. There's a yes. coup. There's, there's like probably guns or right. no, there would be like, that would be it's a action. good thing to write. Yes, exactly. You yes. know, and instead it's literally, you turn the page and it's like, remember that coup we did? <laughs> remember 30 <laughs> years ago, my old friend, when we did that coup? Great. <laughs> this is like, it's like he was writing a one act play with like, where there's only one set. You know, well, like, and, like, again, they have to like do these flash forwards in time where they're like, remember that thing that happened not on this set? Right. I mean, again, <laughs> these were these were distinct short stories when they were originally written. But if you're going to turn them into a book, for the love of God, actually, like, revise. You're allowed to do that. Yeah, there's actually. So it's also funny because it stands out when he describes a scene. Also, I wanted to ask you, I yeah. think every scene in this book is a meeting of some kind. Oh, God, that would be fun. Yeah, I think that's correct. Like, it may be between just two people, but it, like it's like an official meeting. It's not like no one goes out to dinner. No one no, takes a, few, a walk. There, there are a no few one... travel, there's a few travel <laughs> moments. Like, there's someone's in a spaceship going from A to B. Right, that right, does right. happen occasion. But, like, yes, mostly it, mostly it's official meetings. You're right. Yeah, mostly it's yes. official meetings. Like, so this yeah. is a big book of minutes, <laughs> basically. But, and yet less interesting somehow. <laughs> and, and this whole thing, like, about, the, about you know, Selden... Okay, there's the problem of psychohistory, right? There's a the right. problem of him, him coming in and apparently having foreseen everything. Yeah. I'm sure you noticed he talks in such generalities. It's a little bit like a horoscope. <laughs> like... I, I like to think that, like, in a different universe, Sel, you know, like, Harry Selden is actually, like, you know, just off of Central Park. He's got, like, a little psychohistory reading room, like a tarot reading room. And, yeah. you know, just does, just does this for random people. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just, what would be an interesting book, too, is if they figured out that he's full of shit. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. If someone was that like, was hey, the, wait so, a 
a minute. Do you notice how he never mentions like what the crisis actually is? Right. (laughs) So actually this leads to another like insane thing, which is the idea that the people listening to Harry Seldon at this point, after being told that they've been lied to for the last 50 years, might not have an emotional reaction to that or just any reaction to that. Beyond, well, okay, we were wrong, solve our hard Well, when we get to the next session, we'll talk more about this, but one of the things that makes it such like this Mary Sue on steroids kind of situation is Mm -hmm. that the author decrees how everyone feels. Right. And then it's just true. Like, there are these groups of characters, and you're just told, and they believed him, or, and they did this, and they felt this way. And you, you never get, like, humans don't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. But let's move on. All right. Let's, let's not spend too, like, we tend to go longer on the stuff that we hate, but I don't want to give this book the satisfaction. Exactly. There we go. All right. Let's get to act three. Harden pulls a Selden. Flash forward another 30 years. Salvor Harden has been mayor of Terminus that entire time. The planet has thrived by providing nuclear power to the four kingdoms, but doing so under the guise of religious authority, creating both material and ideational dependence on Terminus. Nonetheless, Harden faces new domestic and interstellar challenges. Domestically, a political movement of actionists, led by city councilor Seth Cermak, wants to take action against the Four Kingdoms, who are all still militarily powerful. Meanwhile, the Kingdom of Anacreon, ruled by Prince Regent Winus... I'm oh, you say, have to say Weenus. Weenus? Okay, yeah, yeah. Because that's the only little that's bit the only funny of thing. joy yeah, okay, that yeah, I yeah. got. All right, fair enough. <laughs> all right. Fuck. Sorry. Leave the correction in, because he's called Weenus. All right. Ruled by Prince Regent Weenus, plans to overthrow the Foundation's power <laughs> through a direct military assault against Terminus. Indeed, Weenus makes the Foundation repair an abandoned Imperial battlecruiser. Isn't it for, better? Yes, for the Anacrian, Na- <laughs> Anacrian Navy, and plans to launch his offensive on the night of his nephew's coronation as the King of Anacreon. You're not going to believe this, Anna, but Harden has a plan to outwit his foes. Are you surprised, Anna? Color me nuclear glowing. (laughs) Harden attends the coronation ceremony and is arrested, but in advance has arranged with high priest Polly Verisov, who is aware of the true nature of the religion, pseudo-religion that's sort of exporting the nuclear power, and is also Terminus's ambassador to Anacreon, to foster a popular uprising against Weenus. This includes shutting down the nuclear power to everywhere but the religious temples. Verisov leaves an infuriated mob to the royal palace and surrounds it, demanding Harden's release. Meanwhile, those tricky Foundation engineers added an ultrawave relay to the battlecruiser itself, a remote kill switch to the ship's systems. The priest attendant of the ship, Theo Apparat, presents the relay's activation as a divine curse, and the crew, convinced of the Foundation's god's power, uh, mutinies against its commander, Admiral Prince Lefkin, who is Weenus's son. Lefkin is forced to broadcast a message back to Anacreon, demanding Weenus's arrest. Weenus, infuriated by his failure, Anna, you're right, I'm really enjoying saying Weenus, um, <laughs> orders Harden to be put to death, but his... I would ro- say, I say yeah. the names are actually... One of the few places in the book that like made me smile. Yes, like yes. I think intentionally. I think he's giving them silly names intentionally. I'm assuming so. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's not. He's many things. He's not that much of an idiot. I guess would be yeah. Way to put him. Uh, anyway, Weenus, infuriated by his failure, orders Harden to be put to death. But his royal guardsmen refuse the order. Weenus attempts to kill Harden himself, but fails due to Harden's protective energy field through nuclear power again. Weenus dies by suicide. That, plus another timely recorded message from Harry Seldon, diffuses the actionist threat at home, preventing further retaliation. Anna, I confess one thing that I did find amusing throughout this book was how Asimov sort of treated nuclear power the way the dad treated Windex in my big fat Greek wedding. It can do everything. Like, it, it you know, it's a personal shield. It's a gun. It, you know, powers. It's, a, it's know, literally, like, I believe, a knife. Yeah, also. exactly. Yes, yes, Like, yes. It, it, yeah. It, it, and this gets me to something I referenced earlier, which is I think these books would be better if they were just about magic. Mm. But it would take away all of the self-importance that they're infused with if they called it magic. You're right. And I, I think, think also it, it wouldn't work as well because the problem is, is that, or maybe this is in retrospect, but every, Asimov is always viewed as sort of hard science fiction. Um, what is hard about this science fiction? I, that is my question. Yes. Except for fair. the name Weenus. <laughs> <laughs> He breaks all kinds of rules of physics. Yeah. Like, there is no... One question I have Mm -hmm. is that supposedly these outlying kingdoms 
have become so uh, estranged from the empire, right. they've lost the ability to do nuclear power. Yes, right? that was the implication, clearly. How from... are they in spaceships? How well, are no, they no, doing, no, that I mean... was... But that, no, 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 what, at least at this point, what was clear was that there was a trade between Terminus no, and... No, 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 but they have spaceships before that. Oh. Because how else were they going to getting to, to Terminus? How else was the, the Akronon supposed to attack Terminus? They must have spaceships. Well, yeah, but you could have a spaceship without nuclear power. I mean, it's not, you know. Well, just, you know. I mean, but they have spaceships. Then they have spaceships, which means they have something capable of generating a ton of power, right? Well, I think there were two. Right, sorry, I, I also, need to defend Asimov, and I don't like this. But. Solar power? Like yeah. there, it's like in it. Uh, the the infuriating thing about this book, these books, well, many one of the many funny things is that Asimov thinks that people are stupid. <laughs> that is just thinks the, that most people are stupid. most yes. people are stupid except yes. for a few of his main characters. So yes. like the idea that people would come up with something on their own is just is, like never ever yeah. addressed. There is no sense that there's anyone else that could ever come up with nuclear power, come up Mm -hmm. with an alternative power, figure out psychohistory. Yeah. Right? That's correct. That's why if you make it magic, (laughs) then you can say like only these few people. Although one of the best tropes in science fiction and fantasy is this idea that there is a cult of a priesthood that controls all the Mm -hmm. magic in a universe. But really, there's like someone out there who's like pulled the fucking sword out of the stone or whatever. Yeah. And like who's Harry Potter, right? right? And they get to like battle the people who are trying to control all the knowledge. Yep. But in Asimov's universe, the people who control the knowledge are the fucking heroes. Yep. Yes. They're <laughs> they're anti-democratic. No, in that sense, it's an condescending it's an, way of ruling. It's an incredibly it's, elitist it, way of thinking. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think, yes. That's a safe way of doing it. It's really infuriating. And the other thing that I I wanted to talk about in terms of religion is he was an atheist to the nth degree, right? Mm -hmm. Like he was president of the Secular Humanist Association. Are you shocked, Dan? No, actually, that was one of the few touches I kind of liked in the book where like when his various characters at various times, like instead of saying God knows, it would be space knows or galaxy knows. Okay, sure. Whatever. Look, it was just a nice touch. His hostility, but the thing is, not not only is he hostile to religion, he doesn't understand it. Like, his portrayal of how religion works, Mm -hmm. number one, apparently it only takes 30 years for this religion (laughs) that they've started to just permeate the entire kingdom and everyone just fucking believes it. That everyone, no one questions it. Every that's not how religions work, you know. Like that's not how ideas work. You know this, like yes. <laughs> well, like if you decree, think about it as a cult, like every, maybe I don't know, but like one yes, of the I agree. Reasons why I, yeah. I texted you that we should do a wrinkle in time mm-hmm. is because I was trying to think about any other examples where someone has kind of decreed a populace to be stupid, mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel insulting. You know, <laughs> yes. and it or decreed a populace to be just in the thrall of right. some idea. And I remembered the in Wrinkle in Time, there's the planet of the people that are all the same. They all do the behave exact same ways. I don't know if mm. you remember that no. scene. Like they all come out and bounce the ball. The balls are all in rhythm. Oh, wow. You know, they all like yeah. go inside at the same time. It's like it's sort of a sub parody of the suburbs. Those people are literally under a spell, though. Like those people are literally like, you know, in this, like he just, he just says, and like, and there's a line or two about like the whole thing about the people, the mob, like sure there's mob mentalities and you can kind of manipulate a mob, but there's going to be some people who are like, I don't know. (laughs) This sure seems suspicious. Like there are no atheists in this world. Every single person on these other planets has just bought the religion idea hook, line and sinker. Yes. Yes. No, That's no, not how it's... religion works. Mm, However, yeah. the mm-hmm. interesting thing mm-hmm. is that sometimes science does work like that, or it can seem to work like that. Exactly. Yeah. Which is that people accept something if you tell them it's science. Right. People do not accept something if you tell them it's religion, at least in our universe, right? Like if you said, here is a iPhone person from the, you know, a century yeah, yeah. ago. And the way it works is magic. Mm-hmm. I think even 1920s, someone might be like, I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't, all right, now hold on here. Like, I, I don't know. I mean. Leave it this way. I mean, like, what about like faith healers or what have you? I mean. Well, sure. But like, that's also, there are people that believe in magic. Yeah. 
Sure. I'm just saying, but like, there are it, also people that don't believe in magic. There are plenty right. of people who don't believe faith. Well, healing. Th- look, the whole idea, like the funny, the, the irony most is, people, and, and Dan, most people do not believe in faith healing. Right, but let me put it this way: the irony of this book is that even though the the original protagonist Harry Seldon is predicting decay and division in the empire, the irony is is that to the extent that Asimov deals with mass populations, there is never any conflict within them. Right, they right. all go one way or another. And like, and yeah. actually, like, again, the weird thing was, is that actually the character of Weenus, I actually kind of liked because his resentment was actually like, I bought that. It he was actually was emotional. Yeah, he was a character. He actually yes. had motivations. He wanted something. Right. He was, and he right? was emotional. He was vengeful. And even though like you're clearly not supposed to like him, at least that was a real character. Like I believed him, you know, yeah. in a far what, more what way I, than Salver Harden. Yeah. What I mean about like science versus religion and at least like, I think in this era of humanity mm-hmm. is that if you gave someone an iPhone who didn't know how, I, well, actually go 50 years, maybe that's easier. But if you gave someone an iPhone who didn't know how an iPhone worked and you said, this is magic, mm-hmm. they'd be like, ah, mm, is it right? Yeah, yeah. Most people don't believe in magic. Most right. okay, people. But if you gave someone an iPhone and said, this is science, science has created this. They'd be like, oh, okay. Right. They accept that. And, and they accept said, it on faith as it were. If you said, but I can't tell you how it works. Mm-hmm that person would still be like, oh, but I believe you that it's science. Right. Right? Yeah. And now I believe that those things are different, right? Like Mm. I think that our willingness to accept something as science is categorically different than willingness to accept something on faith. Like, because this is a criticism that the right wing often makes of of climate science. Right. They're like, you can't prove to me, like you don't understand how Mm -hmm. global warming works, you person who says that the globe is going to warm. And often, right, I can't, don't know how an iPhone works. Right. I can find out. <laughs> There's knowledge that's available. And furthermore, <laughs> the knowledge available is not only something that only three or four people understand, which right. is what Harry Seldon says at the very beginning of like, right. no, no, only other psychohistorians can get this. You can't learn this. Um, right. Which, again, was one of those sort of bullshit lines. His hatred for religion is so strong, mm-hmm. like he just hasn't bothered to think about it. Right. He hasn't even bothered to think about how you might plant. There are interesting stories about ha- planting yeah. a religion. I don't know if it's hatred or I mean, the other thing that's clear here is envy. I think oh, interesting. As, I, I would argue that Asimov wishes that like there was a religion devoted to science, you know, in that sense. Like, I mean, maybe that's what, one of the things that motivated him to write this was the idea of, oh, you know, people are idiots, but if I can get them to believe in this this set of principles, and if I can like con them into this, then we will have a more enlightened future. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying it's a good impulse. I'm just telling you that might know. be why I mean, he does it. He definitely, I mean, he definitely thinks everyone's stupid. He definitely yeah. thinks that if his ideas, he's one of those people that like, it's really good that he didn't exist today. <laughs> Fair enough. Take Jordan Peterson. Oh God, please no, Anna. Don't and go there. give him some of the skills of Isaac Asimov. <sighs> and I mean, you, you get I think something even worse than what we have, right? Probably. So let's let's move continue. On. Let's yes, get through let's, this damn let's book. Let's get through this damn book. Uh, let's close with Act Four. So there are women in this galaxy. Flash forward another 55 years and some stuff happens that, to be honest, even I found a little boring and it was about <laughs> interstellar political economy to boot. It was. <laughs> Trader Limar Ponyets is ordered by the Foundation to the planet Ascone. I'm going to call it Ascone. Yeah. I, um, I also like Ask One because like, I think that's supposed to be a joke, but Ascone is better. Like, I think Ascone sounds better. Yeah, yes, Ascone's exactly. better. It's a planet that had refused to trade with the Foundation. Ponyets' assignment is to negotiate the release of Master Trader Eskel Gorov, a secret agent of the Foundation government. Ponyets pulls this off by offering up a temporary transmuter that converts iron into gold. He also entraps rising star Counselor Fur in a trade for Ponyets' cargo, ensuring that he would eventually advocate for further trade with the Foundation. Fast forward another generation. The Foundation retains control over the Four Kingdoms and Ascone, but three Foundation vessels have vanished near the Republic of Corel. The Foundation's leadership, concerned that another Selden crisis is afoot, orders Master Trader Hober Mallow to investigate Corel to see what's what. Mallow investigates, and you know what, Anna? I'm not going to bother with the actual plot because I've read, enough, I've, I've read <laughs> enough Asimov to know what will happen. Mallow outsmarts everyone else, attains political power, the Foundation finds another way to advance its interests. So, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Anna, I was so bored 
by this point, to be honest, that the only suspense was seeing if a female character ever appeared or was allowed to speak. And I believe it was more than 75% into this book that female characters appear. One appears just once, and her only line of dialogue is, oh. Another appears... Oh, give her credit. It's, I think it's more like, oh. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. There was an exclamation point. Yes, that's yeah. fair enough. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there was another character uh, who was the wife of the Commodore, I believe, who I actually missed reading this, which is stunning, but, like, comes off as a shrew. Um, yeah. So I guess my question is, should we create our very own dumbed-down version of the Bechdel <laughs> test for future cannon fodder? I mean, the Bechdel test, as listeners are no doubt aware, is two women are talking to each other about something other than a man. That the, a movie passes the Bechdel test. If it meets that criteria, you'd be surprised how few films sometimes meet that criteria. There has to be, like, two lines of lady dialogue between other ladies or something. Like, yeah, what, I, I was going to Asimov test is t- is at least two women talking to each other. Right. We can which take this, out the which talking book, about each other something besides yeah, a man. It's just two book, women right, who talking, speak to each other. Yes. For, like, <laughs> at least two sentences. This book fails that test is what I'm saying. That's right. Um, I love it. Like, dear listeners, I had to remind Dan <laughs> that there was a second female character. <laughs> That is the degree to which his eyes glazed over. Yeah. And it's actually a somewhat memorable character because she's a real bitch. Mm-hmm. Like, she is portrayed as a bitch, and her husband, the Commodore, fantasizes about beating and maiming her. I can't believe I missed that. I think I was so bored with that last section. That it I was is just, just like it skipping. is the only, interestingly, it's the only violence, really. Yeah. <laughs> in, I mean, there's the suicide of the guy, yeah. I guess. But. There's very little violence. And in fact, there's this quote about violence is the last refuge of the incompetent, right? But which doesn't come up here, although the Commodore is supposed to be stupid. So maybe that's something. I don't know. But like Dan was saying earlier when we talked about it, that this is not that offensive because there's so few women in it. (laughs) And I would actually say, no, it manages to be super fucking offensive. It does. Also, because that woman that has the O dialogue is introduced as one of the Commodore's girls or one of the Commodore's women, implying like he has. It was a Commodore's side piece. Yes, that would be. Yeah. 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 And he actually like one of them mentions having a mistress, too. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it's actually it may be Mallow that mentions having a mistress. Mm -hmm. So it is full on just offensive <laughs> mm-hmm. you know like yeah. it doesn't miss it t- checks every box right. that, that you have for misogyny even though there are very few women in it i will say yes if i had to pick one of the things scenes you, things you didn't hate things i didn't hate but I, like one of the the passages i don't know like it, it, he it's so episodic right, right. like yeah. i guess one of the episodes mm-hmm. that i i didn't or that i found I was amused by. There we go. It is the Perry Mason scene. Like, <laughs> in the court where he reveals that he knew all along. In the court where he's like, where he does the yeah. big like, yeah. and so you see, like there is literally a CSI. It's not Perry Mason, it's CSI. <laughs> he does like close up on that scene. <laughs> I now want to start singing the who. <laughs> like, dear, dear listeners, this is true. Like he has a, he has a rec- secret recording he made of the transaction that's supposed to be illegal. He doesn't actually a, say this, but it's like you were expecting him to say computer enhance. Yeah, he does a computer enhance and yeah, he shows yeah. like, see, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> it is it is like it is a total Perry Mason slash CSI kind of moment. And I was kind of like, that's sort of funny. Like, I don't know if he <laughs> means it to be funny, but it's kind of funny. There we go. But then he ruins it by having literally the crowd sweeps in and hoists this guy on their shoulders. <laughs> and then he woke up and it turned Which out it was all a dream. Which is not how humans work, right? <laughs> yes. Like that's another thing where it's like he is so interested in being having these heroes that are just unquestioned. Right. He makes up a he makes up other humans who are not humans, who are right. just there to worship and, you know, uh, lift up, literally lift up mm-hmm. this main character. And I was trying to think of like a single time where where a defendant in a trial would do such a great job that people would sweep in off the street and hoist him on their shoulders and declare him mayor. Is that ever happened in the history of time? Right. Like, it's just not, like, it just doesn't, it's not how humans work. And that is one of the things that is so frustrating about this book, which is that 
I think to some degree, this is also a problem with Moon is a Harsh Mistress, right? Yeah, and yeah. what is redeeming about Ender's Game is that it is about humans. Right. And those, it is, and, about, and he, is about, it's about characters who are recognizable as right. human beings who have thoughts and feelings and who are complicated, et cetera, et right. cetera. Ender's Game is a much better novel than this oh, God. Is by far. So it's much not better. close. Yeah. And as you say, like one of the other things is that there's even a recognition of actions have consequences, characters change. It, it's that, yeah, And this is none of that. Um, this is so, just yeah. it is just the heroes and then this like kind of again I think NPCs. it would be hilarious to just rewrite these as fantasy <laughs> because then <laughs> or you could even say as a television show yeah. there is a bewitched mob right right because yeah. then you're like oh okay I, I buy that that's what happens in this universe you know mm-hmm. oh Dan we're almost done <laughs> <laughs> but not quite <laughs> I have to ask you, I know the answer to this question because okay. this, it's the whole point of this book. Yes. <laughs> Is there IR in it? Anna, encyclopedias don't win wars, but they do tell us whether there is IR in this book. And the answer is yes. I'm not persuaded by all the IR, but I will say <laughs> that I honestly think it's the best thing in the book, which I know is damning with faint praise, but the IR is not awful. There are three bits of, of IR, I think, international relations in this book. The first is, is that there are concerns shot through the book about asymmetric dependence, essentially what happens when one actor is asymmetrically dependent on the other. We see this in the first part of the book where the psychohistory bullshit predicts that the reason Trantor is destroyed is that it becomes too dependent on the rest of the empire, leaving it vulnerable, which I confess doesn't make an entirely that much sense because it would be like saying Washington DC will crumble because it's reliant on food from Maryland and Virginia. But whatever, I kind of get what they're going on this. And then the four kingdoms being dependent on foundation tech, which is a source of tension throughout the entire rest of the uh, the book. The second sort of bit of IR is Asimov's theory of the rise, but more particularly the decline of empires. And again, this is actually one of the things that I thought was mildly interesting, which is you know, as much as he d- wants to disdain them, the d- the treatment of both the sort of commission for public safety and then Lord Dorwin, who is the the imperial officer who visits Terminus, sort of being displayed as sort of either incompetent or just concerned with protecting their status. Um, and this is very similar in some ways. The the sort of explanation for why it's going to decline is very similar to Mansur Olson's book, The Rise and Decline of Nations, in which essentially what happens, according to Olson, is that you know, republics eventually become so captive to interest groups that innovation gets stifled, institutions become sclerotic. It actually fits very much what's supposed to happen to the Galactic Empire. The third bit of IR, and again, this is somewhat intriguing, is Asimov's speculation about the sources of power. And here I do think Asimov is is trying to do something interesting because he it's clear that he believes Salvor Hardin's line about military force, which is that violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. And in some ways, the whole entire book is about how can a, a planet that has some degree of scientific superiority but is otherwise defenseless and resourceless nonetheless triumph. And the foundation relies on different sources of power, whether it's technological or some sort of pseudo-religious or commercial, which happens towards the end of the book. And one could argue that it is a little bit fanciful and it definitely stretches reality. It is also, and again, I know I'm damning with faint praise when I say this, the most subtle thing in this book. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Because there's not much more that's subtle. So like, you know, and like, like this way, I do think Asimov's con- consideration. And I don't think power, it's super yeah. subtle. He no, has that's an what I'm trying to say. That he yeah. repeats. Yes. And also, oh, that, that is the line that gets repeated the most in the book. There's no question right. about that. Yeah. It, and also, I was thinking about how, I mean, all power eventually comes from the barrel of a gun, right? Mm-hmm. Like, eventually, you do get to violence as a way of making people do things. Right. Like eventually, or or self preservation. Well, you, you know, know what I kept thinking. So like the mob is a form of violence. Like the mob that threatens the kingdom, yeah, right? Like that's true. is a, eventually going to kill somebody. That's what you're worried about. Let me put it this way. And even the commercial stuff, eventually you're going to get people. Well, actually, the commercial one is the most interesting, maybe because yeah. maybe your your threat that that's a threat of power, right? Exactly. Being lost. It's economic power, which is a real than, form. But right. here's the way I would put it. Do you remember, like in in season two of Game of Thrones, there's a very lovely scene between Lord Varys um, and Tyrion about the nature of power. Varys asks him this thing about, like, there's this three there's three men, like a, a king, a seer, and a tradesman, and, like, they all tell the sellsword to kill someone else. 
in those two minutes, there is a more interesting discussion than there is in most of this book. So, like, that's, you know, again, you can argue, you can see why, like, the musings are somewhat interesting, but the problem is, is that he doesn't really, he doesn't think about them all that deeply. It's two-dimensional. It's interesting, and if he had actually, like, done another draft, maybe it'd be even more interesting, but you're right, it doesn't quite hold up. But, Anna, this does lead me to another question. Oh, what what is it, Dan? Is there a critique of capitalism in this book? <laughs> Fuck this book, dude. <laughs> Just fuck this book. I I don't want to think about it yeah. any more than I have to, so okay. I didn't really bother with this section. Yes. <laughs> because its success is the only critique of capitalism you need, right? Yeah. Like the, it is it is a testament to the misogyny at the heart of, you know, the oppression of late capitalism, of capitalism in general. I mean, there is also in the book the book is a celebration of capitalism as well right Mm -hmm. like but it's a recognition that capitalism can produce dependency and also that it is a form of power right like the whole thing with ascone is that (laughs) it introduces planned obsolescence like literally planned obsolescence yeah like that is the idea It, it introduces a form of consumerism that makes them dependent upon Right, which is surprisingly interesting for Asimov, like pointing out, no, being part of the foundation's trade thing actually makes you worse off. That might not be great, you know, yeah. but uh, but I think <laughs> it's unintentional true. on Asimov's part. Yeah, I agree. You know, this book is shot through with just like t- horrible, gross stuff. Yes. And I would almost want to have another discussion. Like it, it, it bothers me so much how successful it was. It, mm. it I do think science fiction has changed a lot. And oh, I yeah. do think it. This book's legacy is starting to lose its grip. But here we can talk about how much they had to change in order to make this book palatable to a modern audience in the Apple TV show. And I will say, having watched the show, like when we discussed this last year, I was I had mixed feelings at best about the show. I now have more respect for the show because they had to do a lot of work to make this at all yeah. presentable. They did do like the one thing I would critique is that in the first in the the opening episode which is sort of mirrors the first part of this book, they have the trial which is on like everyone can see it. And that yeah. was really I remember commenting at the time that was really dumb and it was actually interesting to note that in Asimov's version it wasn't broadcast to everywhere. It was only like a few people watching it. That right. makes sense. Beyond that, every other change they made was for the better by and large. So Gail Dornick and Salvor Hardin are women of color in in the show. That's a lovely, you know, move. And also, by the way, again, the characters were so cardboard thin, it wasn't like you were going to notice. I was going to say, like, you, we could have changed all the pronouns yeah. in this book, and, you and like, it wouldn't make a difference. Right, like, exactly. Yeah. You never see them acting like men, specifically, except, of course, violence. But Yes, yes. Um, and I also, I like the whole thing they invented in terms of, like, the Galactic Empire. I mean, the most interesting parts of the show are about Cleon, played by Lee Pace, I think. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, who's awesome really... Lee Pace. Yes, exactly. He's really good. That whole, like, sort of cloning thing is, is a fascinating thing. And actually, it's always... Those were the parts of the, of the show that were far more interesting than the parts of the show that actually adhered more closely to Asimov's plot. I'm a big fan. There's this, uh, there was this blog series. Now it's kind of like almost 20 years ago about the Left Behind books. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Patheos. Yeah. Uh, it was this, someone who was a actually kind of, I first discovered such a thing as progressive evangelicals in on yeah. this blog. Very good. And he did a critique of the Left Behind novels from the perspective of, of a progressive Christian. Mm-hmm. And he also was, it was really interesting, you can Google this, Slacktivist is the name of the blog. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I really remember about it is he, he talked a little bit about how when you adapt a terrible book mm-hmm. to a movie or a TV show, it is going to get better. Right, there are opportunities. of yes. the work you have to do that's yeah. not done in bad writing. Yeah. Right? No, and it's like true. You like, put a human being, you, you introduce a, an actor yeah. And even if it's a terrible actor. The actor is still adding shades to what would otherwise be a cardboard character. Yeah. Right. You get visuals. Right. No, this is <laughs> um, the, the, the overall you know, rule you, is it like. It all becomes yeah. a little bit better. But this is just an example of things becoming just 
exponentially better. Right. Like they're like in my experience, most books are better than the movie version of the book because mm-hmm. the books almost usually have far more interesting shades. The exception for that I've found are books that are so bad that like like the John Grisham adaptations are often usually better on film would be one example of this. Um, but I think well, that works shade on John Grisham. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. They're not that good, you know, but like the, you know, the movie, like I, whatever, but um, um, I also, I, I appreciate when they're just so different. Like I do, like yeah. the shining is one of my very favorite books of all time. And the shining right. movie is also one of my very favorite movies of all time. Right. And they are just not the same. Right. They are just, and it can be done differently. Yeah. So totally, but this, so live this way, this, I, I, again, the, the show foundation took some absurd plot twists. And I think if anything made Harry Seldon's return even more absurd than it yeah. was in the book. Yeah, oh, totally, it did. That was yeah. even that was even worse by far. But like the show was watchable. And also it was yeah. beautiful. Like there was some the, the scenery I remember being absolutely extraordinary. I'm, I'm going to watch season 2. Like yeah. I I liked the actors. I I thought it was beautiful. Like yeah. Lee Pace is just Oh yeah. yeah such really a delight cool. and yeah. I'm for it. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. All right, we have I think to... that was the, that was the end end run, you know end result of our discussion last time was like the stuff that bothered you bothered you enough that it disturbed your viewing of the show. Yeah, where as I was you, like, yeah. ah, you know, I'm well, leave it this way. I might it. give the season two another chance just because again I now realize, oh my god, I had no idea the crap sandwich they were working yeah. with yeah. to adapt it. So that's entirely fair. All but... right, please. Speaking of crap sandwich, yes, Dan, yes, we have our final question. Yep. Is this canon or is it fodder? Yeah, it's fodder, Anna. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not going with canon on this one. I will say I liked it a little bit better than The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, but I'll grant that's not saying much. And I think part of the reason I liked it better than The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is because that novel was written in sort of the the kind of pidgin English that um, like a patois of like what moon residents talk about that was incredibly annoying. You only see that in this book when Lord Dorwin shows up or whatever. Like he, he had, there was one character written like it was oh, he Elmer speaks Fudd with a list. speaking. Yeah, he speaks like Elmer Fudd. Oh um, God! And and so I'd I'd blissfully forgotten that yeah. section. Yes, it's oh. not a good section. And but like beyond that, in some ways, I will agree with Asimov. This was not a difficult read. It was an easy <laughs> read. So yes, it's short. But other than that, yeah, and it's short. But beyond that, this is like another like House of Cards decision theoretic plot where there's one character who knows everything and everyone else is a non-perform, you know, it's an NPC. So, and also like in particular in this book, having the exact same plot play out five times in a row got to be a little tedious. Like again, by the last chapter of the book or the last section of the book, I'm like, I don't care. I know how this is going to end. Yeah. What about you, Anna? Oh, oh, I don't know, Dan. Mm, let me think about it. <laughs> Launch this book into the sun. Or yes. I was thinking better, use it for kindling. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, find a use for it. Toilet paper? No, I mean, no, it's scratchy. I think I think kindling uh, is better. Yeah, yeah, kindling, I don't know. Like, recycle it into a better book. <laughs> I cannot think of a single thing I liked about it. Uh, <laughs> it is irredeemable. Honestly, and there is a part of me that wonders when the reckoning will come for Asimov. Like when I think about the Civil War statues that were toppled. (laughs) Is there a statue of Asimov? Really kidding. Like I I think he needs to be pulled from his statue, and I think he needs to be regarded as the kind of author that we just don't assign. We don't, you know, like. I uh, see like I had this conversation with someone about like there is there is some literature that has racism or sexism or rape in it that is is redeemable or has compelling features. I mean, you've talked about your your intrigued by Lovecraft, who certainly is a racist. Yeah. And I I, like, yes, Lovecraft. I think Lovecraft is worth reading. There are things about it that, you know, rise above Mm -hmm. what's terrible. And I just don't think there is anything here. Like, I don't think that there is a reason to read him at all, except the only reason to read him is to understand his toxic legacy and see in, like, Gamergate, you know, Mm. in the attempted takeover of the Hugos. Right. That is is Asimov's legacy. In fact, (laughs) he won a Hugo in 2018, a what? retro Hugo. Oh my God! For like really? best best novella of nineteen forty three. Jesus Christ! And wow. I have I looked it up. That was not the sad puppies year. That was not the year of like the orchestrated attempt to like 
get rid of all of the social justice things. Uh, but I feel like that must be an outcome of it. I've read a few apolo- not apology. Yeah, I guess there are apologies from female writers yeah, yeah. Uh, who are like, well, this, you know, the, and also this is some say this is his worst work that there's better work out there. Mm. But I don't know. Like I. <laughs> I mean, I, the, the, like, I keep thinking of the three laws of robotics and so forth, which does, yeah. you know, or... You don't have to read him. Like, the, is it the Martian Chronicles? Is that... Uh, no, that's Ray Bradbury. Although oh, that sorry, would yeah. be... I'm a huge Ray Bradbury fan. Okay. Like, so. I, I, I would love to do that. Well, at some point, have to go through... Like, we're, we're going to have to do Bradbury at some point. So, But yes, yeah. I grant you. I, yeah, there was not a lot of good in this. Oh, oh. but wait. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. It's the nucleics. <laughs> it's something exploding i don't understand how could it explode i don't understand yes. physics it's the debris field where we talk about the stuff we didn't already talk about i'm gonna go first and i got nothing i think i've said every <laughs> single thing that i i hate about this book and there's nothing i like about it i mean okay. i could try to think of more stuff but no, that's totally fair i'm gonna say two things uh and only two things first there's an awful lot of paper in this book for a futuristic space empire but and also the I think again this must be an unintentional. But I did laugh because at one point he talks about vegan tobacco, and I was like, "Wait, vegan?" And then I realized it's got to be from Vega. There's no way he actually, of course, of you know, course. like it was. I don't like, think there was such a thing as veganism. There was no such thing as vegan at that point. Too. Yes, exactly. But like I just I love the idea of vegan tobacco. I don't know. I found that unintentionally hilarious. No and that's were it. harmed in the raising of this tobacco. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but that's it. We're we're done with this, Anna. We are done. Thank, thank space. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank yes. space. We're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need something good to it's, wash my mind out. Dan. It's good. We're going to be watching some Andor from here on. Uh, yes. Anna. Yes, we're going to do Andor next. It's yes. going to it, which is also an interesting exa- example of like recovering something from a, what is starting to be a toxic fandom. There you go. Yeah. Fair enough. I told you, and I think I said this in the Discord, which is that I found that my enjoyment of Star Wars has somewhat decreased because, because of the toxic fandom. Of the toxic fandom, and also the Disneyfication of it has been really. I, I feel like the these Disney series on Star Wars just they're so slavish to a lot of canon material that a kind of fifty percent fan. Like, I'm not, I haven't read the novels. I've seen all the movies. I right. feel like I'm pretty well versed, but I'm not like in that universe. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the Disney shows weirdly are made for those people who mm. are like, know everything yeah, about maybe. Star Wars. Andor is just good. Yes. You could walk into Andor without knowing anything about Star Wars. And it might be helpful because you wouldn't confuse it with Indoor. as i did (laughs) like anna did which we will talk about next week (laughs) all right dan until then keep this channel open for more